The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay. Uh, let's start. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Clemens Rutner. I am the director of research uh, of the schools of the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies uh, at Trinity College Dublin. This is uh, our um, new uh, research seminar with a talk by Dr. Kasia Szymanska. Uh, it will last for like 40, 45 minutes and we'll have uh, an opportunity for a decent Q&A session afterwards. Uh, so you can uh, drop us um, uh, questions through the Q&A uh, function on Zoom. Uh, yeah, I'm very, uh, I'm very glad to be hosting this, uh, meanwhile, pretty successful research seminar. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, our speaker today is, uh, as I said, Dr. Kasia Szymanska. She's uh, our Thomas Brown lecturer uh, in Polish studies uh, at Trinity College with uh, its um, department of uh, Russian and Slavonic studies. Um, her talk today um, is going to be on translation multiples from global culture to post-communist democracy. It is a book project, and uh, we will hear more about it uh, in, in this year, hopefully, uh, and, and can read much more of it. Uh, for the time being, uh, we'll have a, a lecture from her on, on this subject matter. And uh, well, needless to say, she has uh, published in various places. And apart from being with Trinity College, she's also research associate uh, of the Oxford Comparative Criticism and Translation Research Center. So it brings together actually two fields uh, that are very dear to us in our school, namely translation studies and uh, Central and East European studies, um, which is also an emerging field uh, in, in our school. Uh, I'm very happy to have you here, Kasia. And um, I, of course, I'm, I'm happy to have all of you here and we are very excited about your talk. Floor is yours. Okay, thank you so much, Clemens. Uh, for your kind introduction and <laughs> thank you to Trinity's um, Long Room Hub for hosting me today. And I think thanks should be also extended to everyone who decided to spend yet another afternoon on, on Zoom tonight. So hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. And let me now share the slides. I think, yeah, everything is visible. Yeah, perfect. Okay, thank you. Uh, all right, so um, before I start my talk, I just wanted to quickly explain uh, how my book project developed and how this will be also reflected in the outline of today's presentation. So um, I would say the starting point for my project was something I was interested in as a, a reader of literary translations. So the project very much started in translation. Um, and this was this tension between the singular and the plural in the universe of translation. So usually we know when we read translations that one version gets published, but there are also like multiple possible variants which go through the translator's head. And the question here is why do the others have to remain behind the scenes? Uh, who gets to decide and so on? And I'll discuss this idea of translation multiples and multiple translation in the first part of my talk. Uh, but at the same time as this project developed, um, this also made me think of, about the similar, of a similar tension in the realm of politics. And this time it was this tension between the total, the totalitarian in some contexts, and the pluralist. Uh, and in the second part of my talk, I will also discuss the relevance of multiples as both a genre, a genre of writing, but also a mode of, I think, political thinking and structuring political content for the context of Polish um, political transformation of 1989, but also more broadly for current democratic societies. So um, I hope that this transition between these two parts, um, that well, translation multiples and the multiples uh, will become clear in a while. So first of all, let me start with one film scene, uh, which I find uh, very telling as an example of totalized narratives. And this is uh, Yorgos uh, Lantimos Kinus Dontas, 
which is translated from modern Greek as the dog tooth, the canine tooth, the eye tooth, I think the official title is the dog tooth. Um, so in this film, a despotic father who has invented an entirely closed society for his long imprisoned oblivious children controls them by translating the foreign world for them into his own infantilized categories. The mortal enemies of the household are cats visiting the garden, a child is able to leave the house only when their canine tooth falls out, and new words have to be learned from tapes recorded by the parents. For example, C is a leather chair for the from the living room, a shotgun is a type of bird which they can see in the garden. And this vocabulary is sort of limited by their um, horizons, so the borders of the house where they live. In one of the scenes, the father performs a simultaneous interpretation of Frank Sinatra's song, Climbing to the Moon, into Greek, and reinvents all the lyrics one by one in his translation. He pretends that the singer was um, the children's late grandfather, who in his song expresses love to the family and convinces them to stay strong together. Here, the father takes advantage of his children's lack of command of the English language as he enjoys monopoly for truth, for truth in translation as well. Um, unless confronted by other interpreters with their alternative readings or voices of protests, he can keep the children in the dark, blinded by his totalizing illusion. So now, what struck me about this scene is that it is not so um, very different from the usual practice of reading translations. So this is us, the children, is us, and most of the readers of translations who are usually happy with just one version of the original which usually stands in a particular target card for, for the original. Well, so of course there are retranslations and multiple translations, um, but no one really goes to a bookstore to read them. So, you know, like most of the readers go to a bookstore to buy only one translation rather than let's say five different translations of Madame Bovary and then compare different versions just for fun. And this is actually only something that we academics or translation scholars do. I mean, for fun, we, we just go and compare translations. But in terms of the actual reading practice, um, no one really you know, reads translations as a multiple practice. So uh, just to enjoy this variation and different reading experiences. Um, although I think that readers, viewers do that with film adaptation, which is quite different. So for example, I know people who binge watch different adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and then ha they have they their favorite takes and they discuss those different takes and so on. But that very rarely happens um, to translations. And also readers quite often read translations because they don't know the language of the original and um, they want to have access to the text. So they usually want to have a substitute or some sort of spark notes version of the original um, in their native language, which sort of gives them this illusion of having access to the original meanings. So one translation is enough to replace the original in this function. And I think we sort of, um, we as academics, we also contribute to this, um, to this practice. So another factor is how we teach translation in school, also in the academic context, because it's sort of, um, I, th I feel it's usually used as a boring tool for testing the knowledge of the language because there are right and wrong answers. You, you are tested based on what you say, right? What, what, you, what answer you give in your translation. Uh, but this is a different story altogether. I won't uh, get into much detail here uh, into, into how this um, influences our perception of translation. What I want to stress is that in real life, translation is multiple. And we know that at the level of historical production, because there are retranslations coming in series, multiple translations, for example, of the Bible with competing versions leading to political crisis in different um, periods. At the level of translation process, translation is also multiple because each translator comes, with, comes up with multiple possibilities for one phrase, but then maybe at the editorial stage, they have to narrow um, down to this array of possibilities to just one. Um, just because maybe there's some pressure at the institutional level to publish a finite ready to go product, which is a book of translation. And we know that translators are dissatisfied with the state of affairs because they keep coming up with multivariants in footnotes, glosses, annotations, brackets. So this is this kind of tension where the multiple kind of rubs against the, the single, the singular. And this is exactly the tension be between this actual, uh, actually singular product and the spectrum of plural possibilities in the realm of translation that was a starting point for my own project. 
So in my book project, I've looked at around uh, 15 uh, longer pieces or full books composed from multiple translations of the same original. And just to say, this is a caveat I always have to make. So these were not published as academic anthologies or critical editions, but they were published as uh, fully fledged literary works, which are supposed to be read by general audience in this new form, which I call translation multiples. And in my book, I tried to make sense of how to read this newly emerging genre. So these projects were, uh, first of all, created in English um, in, by North American or British authors, uh, but also those who use global English as the language of their creations. So, for example, in this mix, I had an, um, a Uruguayan and a Norwegian French multimedia artist, some Italian and German writers as well. Um, and also, um, besides writers, translators, um, I also had other, <laughs> let's say, um, professions represented. So, for example, there was an American professor of physics and cognitive science, Douglas Hofstadter, who uh, was interested in exploring the potential of form, machine translation, and translating under constraint. Uh, it's Le Tombeau de Marot, which you can see here in the middle. So his book, for example, was composed of 88 different translations of one French poem, which was accompanied by co uh, commentaries. Uh, and he sort of wanted to explore, uh, explore this idea of music in language. So 88 was supposed to represent the standard number of piano keys. According to some, also 88 was supposed to represent the number in infinity, but there are different interpretations uh, um, as to what that actually meant. Um, and another example was, for example, uh, so for instance, another example was composed uh, of uh, 47 different translations of the first three lines from Dante's Inferno. Uh, this is Caroline Bergbaum. Uh, again, another one from 19 different versions of an ancient Chinese poem, uh, 19 ways of looking at one way. And um, in my project, I offer different interpretations of how to read these uh, poems, books, um, and um, how to enjoy them really, because uh, what, you know, um, they are supposed to be read by the general, general audience. And uh, I wondered what they tried to communicate to us through this texture of multiple translation. So just to give you one example, this comes from Caroline Bergvold's Via. On the left-hand side, uh, well, you can see just like a short excerpt of Caroline Bergvold's project where she chose over 40 translations of Dante's Inferno and put them um, together. And just to give you an idea of how many there actually are, she had at her disposal 200 different translations of Dante's Inferno into English, which uh, were available in the British Library. And then she chose over 40 different ones. Uh, and these first three lines feature a speaker who admits to being halfway through the journey of life and to have lost the right path. And this very telling fragment gets reiterated through the voices of different translators and people who feel that they are also lost in the middle of their lives. Uh, because each time a translator speaks about it differently, um, the poem itself, it can be said, is also a journey via or via language. And this is already, just to uh, you know, draw your attention to this fact, this is already a very small space. We are talking about three lines and none of them in this you know, poem composed of 40, over 40 different versions is identical. Um, so if we zoom into each of these single words, phrases and images, they will take us along similarly meandering roots. So on the right hand side, you can see a visualization of this poem, uh, where basically in uh, those over 40 versions, you can see the variation at the level of very, very small uh, word choices like via camino. Uh, the original Italian camin camino, uh, walkway and via path route have been translated differently with some of the versions overlapping and some crossing paths. Uh, but all of these, uh, all of these words have different meanings and connotations. So we can see, for example, high road, track, course, journey, travel, and so on. Similarly, when Dante um, talks about dritta via, uh, the pathway road can be either direct, dritta, straight or narrow, where the emphasis is on the shape. It can be straightforward, emphasis is on the easiness of travel or true, right, rightful, where the emphasis is on the moral trajectory. And I think what gets exposed thanks to Bergwald here and these variations is the process, um, well, the process of translation, first of all, 
but also the fact that translation is a very provisional, tentative, and rather subjective exercise, because it really depends on your reading of the original and what you want to underscore in your version. And um, also, translation is never a finite text, as there are technically plural possibilities for each passage, and each of them just becomes a partial reading of the original. And one point I wanted to make is that this uh, idea is not entirely new on the conceptual level, because you may recognize this uh, the same sort of multiple structure in other arts. So for example, in film, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon or uh, Ran Lola Ran with different alternative scenarios uh, presented on screen. In literature, of course, Raymond Queno, Existis du Still, where basically 99, there are 99 ways of telling the same anecdote about an incident on the bus. Uh, in music, so for example, many musical forms are variations on the same theme, score, but also jazz and this idea of improvisation. For example, Charlie Parker released two different albums in 1951 based on the same piece on Pocoloco, and he produced two separate albums, although the original score was the same, basically he released two different takes on that original. In art, T.J. Clark's The Sight of Death where this art critic went to see the same painting by Poussin in the museum and registered his shifting responses day by day. Um, and each time when we think about the multiples and this type of structure in other arts, the idea is the same. So destabilizing the original work, um, the original story, the idea that one true finite version is available to us uh, and is not filtered and so on. And, so, um, and yeah, and these are uh, the, the primary uh, I think, um, conclusions uh, when we read these type of conceptual works. But also, if we go back to these um, translations, so there's also one important uh, gesture, which I think I highlighted, uh, which is the choice of the language here. So in the context of translation multiples, it is the global English, which is the contemporary lingua franca. And it was chosen by as the language of multiples for most of these creators. Um, and I think it is because English is also criticized for being very reluctant to translation, uh, let alone that which comes in series and multiple variants. So for example, to give you some statistics, uh, only 3% in the UK around over, well, sorry, over 3% in the UK and in Ireland and similar in the US of books get published yearly. So this also says something about exposure to other culture and languages of the English, let's say global English language and global English culture. And I treat those translation multiples as very difficult reads and very subversive projects, which multiply different variants of the same originals to draw the reader's attention to the fact of translation. So look, this text has been transformed in the process. You can't just swallow it so easily in the ocean of English language production. There has been some mediation going on in the process, so please be alerted to yet another layer of uncertainty. This text comes from a different language and was originally written by someone else. So this is what these translation multiples seem to be uh, telling us. Okay, and this is also why multiplying translations is an important practice in the transfer from other languages into global English. Uh, for example, Rebecca Wolkowicz in her book Born Translated um, anointed the, di the digital space as a very promising platform for offering plural renderings. According to her, online literary journals can now more easily release various takes on the same original without the fear of adding extra pages and then generating extra shipping costs. And well, this is, I feel, a common problem when printing in hard copy. Uh, and also, um, there are a couple of research projects in the digital humanities where this multiplicity of translation comes to the fore. One of them is, for example, translation arrays at Swansea, where which takes a scene from Shakespeare's Othello and traces its 37 German renderings published until 2020. And it looks at which original passages became most prone to variation and why. Uh, another, uh, another research project is Prismatic Jane Eyre at Oxford, uh, of which I am a proud member, uh, which focuses on various um, translations of Charlotte Bronte's novel Jane Eyre, rendered into over 50 languages in over 500 different versions. And, it looks specifically at these textual differences and linguistic variation in different versions of in one language. So you can see that multiple translation has become a very <laughs> exciting field of study with different projects examining uh, its potential. And also I myself wondered 
Um, are there any translation multiples and similar cases in my native language, Polish? And actually I did identify a few examples, but I noticed that they all had quite a different heft and resonance than the Anglophone examples. And I'll quickly explain what's different in terms of the backdrop or sociopolitical context. So um, first of all, translation occupies a different position, which is closer to continental Europe. So uh, in the case of Poland, we are talking um, about 25 to 40% of books published, which are translations, according to literature across frontiers report. Um, where, uh, well, the average percentage varies depending on whether you count the proportion of translations of books, um, of translations in all books, both new and released ones, or only the new ones. So that's why there's this um, interval over there. But even if we take the first figure, 25, other European countries have a similar proportion. So 20% in Italy, 16% in France, 12 in Germany. Uh, again, these figures are based on literature across frontiers report. Um, and uh, another thing which distinguishes Polish translations from the Anglophone multiples is um, that, well, first of all, all of them were created after 1989. And in a sense, they testify to the political transition and changing publishing landscape. And what I mean by this is that, first of all, there's a technical possibility of multiple versions commissioned by different independent institutions which shows this shift from the authoritative state-run publishing order in the communist times towards a more decentralized system, allowing for the multiplicity of versions. So previously you would have canonical or officially anointed translations published by the state publishers, uh, which were then after 1989 challenged by other versions joining circulation. And in practice, for example, this held true for translations of novels, which were perceived as literary classics. For instance, I looked at one series of foreign classics released by the state-run publishing institute PIV, and the scenario was quite similar. So for example, there was one canonical translation which was reprinted and recycled for decades with multiple re-editions of one original, uh, one official rendering, which would then break into more renderings after 1989. And the most extreme examples in, um, uh, in, uh, in the translation <laughs> database I, I analyzed was, for example, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, um, and Fyodor Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, because at least 10 re-editions of one canonical translation was, uh, uh, were published uh, by the state press during the communist period. And then after 1989, three or more competing renderings entered circulation in the free market publishing. So this is one um, important factor that distinguishes uh, my examples from, from the uh, Anglophone translation multiples. But also um, the second one is that uh, for, for most of those uh, post-1989 translation multiples, variation becomes a pretext for generating different ideological readings and for discussing different political visions on a par with one another in what um, I see as a pluralist gesture. So the idea is um, as follows. If you display more than one variant, then you also accept someone else's different stance, political view or ideological interpretation of historical events. And in this, um, in this sense, the multiples try to dismantle the Cold War binary of friends and foes, because a lot of Western history books stop at the successful transformation in the region. And, and actually these uh, projects, translation multiples in the Polish context, they comment on the very, on the other side of the coin. So transformation may have been promoted as a success story, but there are also some problems which are overlooked too. And I'll discuss this in more detail in a second. Um, and another important um, aspect is that these different ideological discussions uh, also related to the shifting identity in Poland from the 1980s. So, in culture, uh, for example, in cinema and literature, there's this recurring um, life motive of twins, alter egos, doppelgangers. For example, in, in Kieślowski's Double Life of Veronique, you have one twin living in France, one in Poland, they never meet and so on. Um, and these, um, these works, these artworks, um, um, literary and cinematic artworks, uh, represent that Paul struggled with those um, problematic belongings. So, the questions were, are we part of the West or the East? Who should we side with? How to come to terms with the con conflicting narratives of the roundtable discussions and so on. So before I go to translation multiples in Poland, let me again resort to a film. <laughs> so in 
So Kieślowski's Blind Chance, which are in, our, in the original uh, is titled Przypadek, and though it could be also translated as coincidence or case, uh, as in case study, and in fact, this is a case study of three different lights of, of this protagonist. Um, it was initially produced on the wave of the solidarity coming to prominence, but then was banned by the Polish authorities until 1989. And the plot line was constructed as a study of three different life paths of uh, Witek, a young protagonist who decided to catch a train to Warsaw after his father's death. Uh, depending on whether Vitek caught the train or not, whether he met a friend on the train or a railway guard on the platform, his story unfolded in three different scenarios. In the first one, the man got involved in the Communist Party and became a state apparatchik. In the second one, he turned into a religious anti-communist and worked in underground publishing. And in the final version, he completely withdrew from political concerns, trying to lead a private, apolitical life. Now the question is, if Vitek is indeed the same person, so the same original self translated into three different coincidental circumstances in all three scenarios, then how could we possibly, how could he possibly grow into a regime supporter while also having the potential of becoming an anti-communist dissident in his parallel life? In fact, he remains a good-natured and decent man regardless of the trajectory and he has accidentally started following. By studying three lives of Vitek on equal footing, Kieślowski suggested that the goods could still re uh, reside, still be found on either side of the political barricades in conflict Poland of the 1980s. At the time of the release, critics could not come to terms with Kieślowski's unbiased narrative, which lacked a pronounced political line. Already at the script stage, his project was attacked by official critics for anti-state uh, anti-state dem um, demagogy, whereas the Solidarity readers later accused Kieślowski of being a social realist filmmaker. But the film's multiplied composition only teased out the contradictions dormant in the Polish collective psyche, as it seemed impossible to reconcile differently thinking and active vitex in the period of political tribalism, and by this I mean the Solidarity period. This film anticipates also the structure of post-1989 translation multiples in Poland. So just before I uh, focus on my main example, my favorite example as well, let me just say what type of material I worked with. So um, two examples. Uh, first of all, a Polish dissident activist and intellectual who later became a professor at Harvard, Stanisław Barańczak. Um, instead of the political commentary in 1991, following fully free, um, fully free elections in Poland, um, he published for an emigre political magazine uh, the multiples of the French anthem La Marseillaise um, in multiple variants, um, and each of the variants commented on differently on the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. So it included a skeptical, optimistic, indifferent stance. And this revolutionary, originally revolutionary song was also um, translated into three different political ideological interpretations of what happened in, in Eastern Europe. Another example was a translation multiple of Bertolt Brecht's poetry from the post-communist context. So Brecht's poetry in Poland was previously manipulated in print and hijacked by both sides of the barricades, either the state governed presses or underground publishing. For example, solidarity activists, which you can see, I mean, you can see a leaflet on the right hand side, uh, used his poems on posters, bulletins, leaflets and so on. And when um, a group of translators after in 1989 published their translation multiples, the idea was to liberate Brecht from that corrupt legacy and bipolar mode of reading. So they multiply different versions of Brecht's poetry just to present uh, alternative scenarios and uh, try to kind of descend from this corrupt status in the Polish, uh, politi uh, Polish political and literary scene of the poet. Okay, but now I'll present my favorite example which is a triple or maybe a double um, translation multiple of um, A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. So throughout the 1990s, Robert Stiller, a Polish Jewish polyglot, work, worked on his three translation variants of A Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. The original novel adapted by Kubrick uh, featured a teenage group of vandals speaking an invented idiom like Natsat, which was a mix of um, the mix of the English language with Slavic modeled um, neologisms. 
In Polish, Stiller interpreted this mixture as a symbolic language of oppression and at the beginning created two versions in Polish. The first one was called the R version with a Russianized idiom, opposed the communist legacy and Stiller sort of speculated what would happen had the political tables not turned in 1989. And then his A version for American criticized the US, the US modeled uh, post-communist capitalism in the region. What is quite important is that both translations entered the market simultaneously in 1999 as a sort of literary tie-in, uh, which means that basically you could buy the black version or the white version of uh, A Clockwork Orange. Um, so the first one was titled uh, Mechanical Orange, and the second one was titled, well, this, these are my back translations, Wind-Up Orange. And these two were recently republished as one book with two alternative translations inside. And this project had a considerable sci-fi fandom and produced seven re-editions for version R and four re-editions for version A. And it gained some, you know, like a cult status <laughs> among devoted followers. But also in the introduction, Stiller announced a forthcoming German version titled Sprężnowa Pomarańcza, Spring Assisted Orange, like a spring assisted knife, which was targeted at the European Union, but the unfinished um, text of the Spring Assisted Orange was published only recently after Stiller's death, just two chapters, and they were published by me. So uh, the three hypothetical contemporary Polands for Stiller represented different forms of hegemony anchored in the present day, but at the same time, they alluded to different historical periods of Poland's political dependence of an, over the past two centuries. So just to give you more background, in the 19th century, Poland was partitioned among three empires, Russia, Austria, and Russia. And version R underscored the Russification in the Russian partition in the 19th century Russian Empire, and of course later the post-war Sovietization, and it used Russian as a source of vulgar and brutal language. It's interesting to see that Pol Polish and Russian swear words are actually cognates, so basically it sort of suggests that this brutality of Russian is inscribed in, in the language, in the perception of, of Poles. Then version A showcases instances of the post-1989 Americanization with its promoted capitalist lifestyle and the flood of economic goods and the original infamous concept of ultraviolence in the novel, only in this version becomes superviolence taken from a superhero blockbuster. And especially, I mean, it's especially telling that Alex is forced to watch violent films as part of his therapy. And finally, the version, uh, version N um, alluded to the Germanization in the Prussian partition in the 19th century, but also cast German in its role of the language of violence during Second World War. So there are a few words which Poles could recognize, which are verfluchten, raus, raus, raus. And basically this is like immediately the first association is the vocabulary of, of Second World War. And I know that this trajectory of colonialism in Poland is rarely discussed, um, but there is, for instance, a great study on the topic by Christine Kopp um, entitled Germany's Wild East. Basically, her argument is that the culture of Nazi or pre-Nazi Germany treated Poland as a colonial space. And this reading, I feel, is very much at the heart of Steeler's project. But also, interestingly, some forms were adopted via Yiddish in this version. So, for example, Danke um, Shein, Naturlik, uh, which is a reminder of this brutally eradicated Jewish element in the Polish culture. The story of three different Alexes takes the original as a starting point for discussion about post-colonial readings, with Poland always being a whipping boy in the political reshuffle between three alternative spheres of influence. Also, there is technically no difference in how the plot pans out in the communist and post-communist reality, and because of that, this project undermines the solidarity myth with the ensuing miracle of political transformation in Poland. And you can see similarities between three different clockwork oranges and three different Alexis, right? And Kieszynowski's three stories of Witek in Blind Chance. But also referring back to our first film scene from the Dogtooth, Poland in 1989 also had to overturn its own despotic father who imposed one totalizing ideological narrative. But at the same time, it didn't mean that with the transition of 1989, it had to easily slip into yet another single totalizing narrative and take for granted the transformation miracle with all its intents and purposes, even though um, the politicians and some historians often did. So now let me just um, 
give you um, a, a more general conclusion to what, we, what we've just seen. So what's enticing about translation multiples and similar projects is that they acknowledge those different viewpoints and serve as a pluralist flat platform for discussion around them. For example, a different context here, Grayson Perry, a more contemporary example in the British context in this, um, in this case. After the, the 2016 British referendum, the British artist Grayson Perry created Divided Britain 2017, a film documentary following the lives and narratives of both the Brexiteers and the Remainers. The film culminated in a, an exhibition of two enormous vases, almost identical in size, shape and color, each including visual materials that represented the Leave and Remain roads, respectively. Well, the, the only difference was in size because one of the vases was 4% points uh, smaller than the other one, which was supposed to represent the referendum results. But while Perry juxtaposed these two stories and opposing rationalists um, behind each voting group, he also made those represented on his artwork meet and look at them uh, and look at the other's group visual materials, which um, these materials actually turn out to be fairly similar. I mean, the color, um, some logos, uh, and some images they chose. The main heft of Perry's gesture lay in acknowledging both sides of the barricades at the same time in the public context. Having sculpted both stories into the material of a vase, he exhibited the two narratives next to each other in a museum for both factions to appreciate. And this is exactly, I would argue, the role of the multiples. So, they simply point to a more inclusive and democratic type of arranging and presenting information, including both literary and political content, which also knocks us out of our usual filter bubbles and, um, and this type of practice, this type of structuring of information also opposes the tide of political tribalism. Uh, with their promotion of a more diverse and uh, more diverse textual and ideological spectrum, the multiples show how different worldviews and ideas can coexist, not only in translation, but also within one democratic society. And that's it, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot uh, for this wonderful uh, talk, uh, very inspiring talk and um, uh, you have shown us there is no end to translation, but also no end to translation studies because you know uh, you can you can make uh, basically work out of uh, the multiplicity of of translations and um, and translation policies. This was very uh, very very interesting, and uh, I hope we have some questions soon. Um, it would be interesting to ask you since uh, I remember you have some good command of German, obviously. Um, you probably know what the most translated poem of uh, German literature is, uh, namely Rilke's The Panther. And I bet there must be like, certainly like 10, 20 verses in Polish too. It would be very interesting um, uh, because I, I've seen studies on, on this one where you really can see the micropolitics of translation. And, and I guess uh, particularly such a, um, a poem that was obviously deemed decadent in communism, uh, but still, you know, uh, had a lot of fans for its uh, imminent beauty, um, would, would actually uh, would, uh, would be a good case study. Do we have any questions here? Please uh, bombard us with questions. You can uh, use the, the Q&A um, function here. Um, I'm, well, I'm waiting. In the meantime, yeah. I can, um, yeah, I can jump in and say um, that Rilke's Panther, for example, when translated into Polish but also into English, basically quite often is placed next to each other in those critical editions. And I feel like there is a difference, um, you know, in terms of basically how the editors want to present this multiplicity. If there is some sort of, you know, artistic take on it, or there's some sort of a conceptual value. But you'll be interested yourself to hear that, for example, um, a similar case, which uh, was actually suggested to me by a German colleague, uh, is James uh, Joyce's, I think, Anna Livia Plurabella translated into German. So apparently there was one very prominent writer who decided to place uh, different translations together. And he also like, presented his own narrative on that. And he presented his own take. I don't remember the name of the writer, but basically 
James Joyce translated into German is also a case of translation multiple. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a very famous translation by Hans Vollschläger, which was the standard mm -hmm. translation for a long time. I remember reading it when I was 18 years old, but then it was contested and, you know, and basically uh, other translators would, would uh, chip in. Um, I think it's a very, it's a very exciting uh, topic, but uh, I would have, a, and, and before we come to the questions of the audience, I would have a last little question. Um, I've heard that uh, English is very often used as a bridge uh, language, not only in the European Union, uh, but also in literary translation. I, I've heard that uh, Murakami for a while was translated into German, not from Japanese, but uh, through English. So the first translation was from Japanese into English and other translators, they would not bother to, to know some Japanese, but uh, take it from the English translation. Um, have you come across such phenomena uh, in, in your research as well? And, and, and what, what are your thoughts about it? Mm -hmm. Oh yes, definitely. So basically you're talking about indirect translation. We have. Mm -hmm. Um, one translation scholar at Trinity working on indirect translation, actually. I know, I know. Um, but um, yes, in case of basically minor languages, it is quite often this um, vehicular language. Although English is not the only one, I mean, in different parts, in different periods of history, it was Spanish or, or French. So, for example, I know of a few examples of uh, Gombrowicz translated via Spanish or French uh, first before he, which who was a, a Polish um, writer, translated via French or Spanish and then into English rather than the other way around. So it depends on the connections quite often. Um, for example, you also have, I don't know, from Albanian, Ismail Kadare translated via French. Um, I don't know, in, in case also, in the case of like bilingual writers, quite often the major language is the preferable one and the original is, you know, um, is sort of established as this major, uh, as, a, as the work in the major language as opposed to the minor one. And um, quite often, I mean, English is one of the possible vehicular languages in the case of indirect translation, it's not the only one. Uh, if you ask me about basically the kind of ethical <laughs> implications, I would say that otherwise we wouldn't, we would have no Kadare, no Gombrowicz in English. Um, mm. So I would say in, it has happened like throughout centuries. So, you know, like this is not only a recent phenomenon, but quite often, uh, you know, um, some of the authors also worked from translation trots or crips, uh, where basically you have a native speaker presenting, at, like for example, I don't know, as Rapant or, um, or um, Lowell in the American context, basically having some sort of access to a different, I mean, the kind of like, like the translation trot from someone else, and then basically using that uh, as the base of their of their creative take on, on the original. So, I mean, you know, these are also very interesting and very uh, valuable additions, right, to the history of, of literary translation and to the history of literature in the target language. So. Uh, I would say these things like indirect translations do happen. They have some sort of ethical interpretations, especially uh, implications, especially if we translate from a minor language, but I wouldn't say that they should be avoided, that there should be any, I don't know, moral, pun you know, like punishment or like any moral uh, judgment uh, uh, related to this, um, just because they do happen. And, you know, quite often the result can be astonishing and- Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks a lot. So I have plenty of questions now, uh, and I will read them to you just uh, for everybody uh, to get in into the mood. And then, of course, you can answer them. So uh, Ned Mackin says, uh, how were the Clockwork Orange multiples received? And do you think that a similar project would be viable in publishing today? <laughs> Interesting. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so I think I may have mentioned that basically the Clockwork Orange um, in this kind of initial stage when it was presented as this kind of yeah literary tie-in so you could buy either the black or the, um, the, the white version basically it created a lot of um, interesting reviews also among the sci-fi fandom so a lot of people were wondering especially because Stiller included the intro in the introduction that he's going to present the German one. Uh, everyone was like waiting and looking forward to the German uh, translation. And a lot of people speculated that when Poland entered the EU, it was, you know, politically incorrect. And, you know, there were some sort of like conspiracy theories around it. And um, when I republished, I mean, basically Stiller unfortunately died. I was in touch with him. Uh, so, um, I mean, I almost like <laughs> dragged this version, like, like 
yeah, like took this version out of his hands um, and on his deathbed uh, and basically asked him whether I could use it for my project and publish basically a short, a short excerpt. He, um, he, he was, I think, I mean, it looked like this project was already, I mean, almost ready. So basically there was the cover page, there was everything that was sort of ready to go. Um, although, I mean, he translated only two chapters, I think in the end. Um, and I could see one looking at this, at this translation that um, basically he did fulfill, I mean, he <laughs> did follow up on what he was writing before. So there was this interesting mixture of the language of violence and the kind of, you know, the fear, um, the usual like fear, <laughs> the anti-German fear among some Polish um, intellectuals and then kind of Polish, uh, let's say, politicians. And the question whether it would be viable, it's interesting. It's an interesting one because I feel that most of these cases came from translators who were pretty established. So for example, let's say that there is a kind of beginner, a translator who wants to publish three different versions, three different translations of one novel and approaches the publisher at the moment, basically in the current um, you know, publishing scene, in the current publishing context. And basically ask, oh, could I publish three different versions of this, you know, novel? Like the pub, most of the publishers, I think all of the publishers would say no. And um, but because Stiller was an established translator, I think it it was the kind of main factor why um, why this um, wh why this particular uh, you know novel was published in this format. Um, let me also add that he translated from twenty languages. So basically, you have his translations from Chinese, Malay. He was a polyglot and a true visionary. And I think because of that. The publishers did let him do that in the 90s um, and now as I said the version this version was republished so I would say that it would be very difficult to convince publishers at the moment um, although I think in the genre of poetry it's more um, I mean also in online publishing right as Rebecca Wolkov has mentioned basically it's more viable it's it's feasible to basically generate multiple variants yeah, thanks, Kasha. I think we have to to cut down a little bit our uh, our answering time because we have so many questions. I'm I'm, I'm really amazed. So and Malhal, the questions. That's why. Yeah. Okay. okay. And Malhal is asking: uh, Does the question of translation multiplies in any way change or influence the problem of the untranslatable that has become such a site of debate in recent years? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically the idea of untranslatables <laughs> as well was picked up by Emily Utter. So this idea of um, that there is something inherently, you know, untranslatable in the original. And because of that, we have to produce more and more of these versions, for example, to encircle this original, to kind of approach this untranslatable in some way. So I would say the translation or the multiplicity has this role in most of the critical editions. So, for example, some of the editors decide to publish multiple versions just because there is something inherently untranslatable. So we can't substitute it with one version in the original uh, in the target language. So therefore, we have to multiply those versions. And I think it is inherently um, you know, wedded to this idea of untranslatable. And for example, Emily Apter's project is basically kind of hinges on this idea that, well, there are untranslatables, there are untranslatable physical, uh, sorry, philosophical terms. And because of that, we have to produce this thick translation, multiple versions so that we can encircle the original meaning. Um, so yes, definitely there is a connection. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Michael Cronin is asking, hi, Michael, by the way, uh, is there a sense in which multiplicity only matters if difference makes a difference? In contemporary cognitive capitalism, difference is endlessly celebrated, but arguable because it does not seriously contest the order liberal economic regime and, if anything, perpetuates it. Mm -hmm. Well, the question here will be whether this difference is celebrated on the level, because multiplicity in translation multiples celebrates difference in the target language. So basically, you have different takes in the target language. It doesn't necessarily say anything about the difference in translation, right? So basically you can have, you, you, you still can have, you know, um, a, I don't know, like a, a poem coming from a context which can be perceived as culturally different, but it doesn't perpetuate, I think, this, this difference. There's the difference, there's the kind of pluralist option in the target language. Um, another, th another thing I wanted to say is that I think in some ways it will uh, actually maybe undermine it just because, in, I would say, especially in the in what you call uh, called um, cognitive capitalism, there's this um, basically idea that whatever 
comes to the fore basically is already you know like feasible right and i would say if we are giving more space to or more room to 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 multiple variants it can for example invite otherwise unrecognized groups or un other otherwise unrecognized dialects or dialectal version versions or variants to come to the form so this translation multiple also invites other uh, forms or other, you know, um, they are different, but they are different within the target language. So I'm not sure whether that um, responds to your question. I would have to, I think, reread this question when, when I see it, I think, in the written form. Uh, but basically, the, I would say the, uh, the idea of difference is inscribed in translation multiples, but it is, I think, a, po a positive take on it would be that it uh, invites more unrecognized groups to be published to parents. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Uh, next question is Susan uh, McMahon. Do you usually have a favorite version or is it really possible to appreciate multiple versions equally and for the different interpretations uh, to happily coexist? Yes, I know that translation multiples are a utopian project in some ways. And I did mention that they are difficult to, they're difficult to read, right? Because no one actually does it. And of course, we always have those um, favorites. And this is because we have our own cognitive and our own, I think, aesthetic biases. So for example, out of the translations of, you know, Dante's, I do have my favorite one, but basically I still have to have to, this kind of like objective distance to appreciate them all to see what each of the translators are you know is doing in their version and um, this is something again which uh, I mentioned before this is what translator translation scholars do quite often they compare you know like with, in this descriptive framework but I think on a personal level I always do have my favorite uh, versions but at the same time uh, it doesn't mean that it's because I have some sort of um, very concrete, very fixed idea of what the original represents. So I have some sort of reading of the original and this translation actually matches this reading. And that's, that's why I like it. But maybe there are different readings of the originals, uh, which, you know, I read otherwise and maybe someone else has a different take on it. So, you know, we have to be also aware of those biases. But yeah, the question is, yes, I do have my favorites always. <laughs> it is a utopian project in some ways. <laughs> yeah, there's Joseph Lacey um, uh, writing, uh, the grace and pair example is good to, uh, at showing how multiple translations can provoke productive discussion, uh, as it is uh, in the Clockwork Orange, which is a very deliberate attempt at multiple translations. But it's less clear to me how this productive discussion could take place around, for example, the Jane Eyre case, uh, at least to the public, since, as you say, very few people will actually read multiple translations. Uh, and think about the difference. Do you have any thoughts on this? Mm -hmm. well, I was scared of um, getting a question from a political scientist. So <laughs> thank you, Joseph, for this one. And um, so, yes, so basically going back to that argument, sort of kind of working backwards. Um, of course, you know, in the case of Grayson Perry, it is, I mean, you simply, or the Polish examples, right? You have this, those different ideological, explicitly ideological readings. But I think now going back, uh, I would say something which sort of follows back in my reply to Susan, which is basically um, in translation criticism as well, or in general, in the way translation is perceived and discussed in the public, I think if we acknowledge more than one version, it is also a political gesture. So we say there's not only this authoritative version, which is the best, but we at the same time acknowledge a different take. So it can be, you know, the, the, this political gesture can also be at the, I think, literary or aesthetic level. So what we are saying, we are accepting a different reading from our own. For example, I'm accepting a different take on Jane Eyre. In, there are five, for example, in Polish, uh, there are 12 in German. Uh, and I am accepting, you know, the fact that someone else at a different point could have interpreted Jane Eyre differently. And I'm still exposing or presenting or acknowledging in, you know, in this kind of format, multiplied format, different takes. Um, and this is something that doesn't work, for example, in translation criticism. And this is something that we don't see very much in uh, reviews, um, in translation reviews, for example. So um, quite often, you know, like someone just like recommends this new brilliant authoritative translation without actually mentioning that there are more, you know, um, takes and that each of the translators actually had something in mind when they translated something else, you know, like a different interpretation. So I think this, this would be also like partly an, um, yeah, a, a political agenda in this case. Um, okay, we have another question by Fergus Denman. 
Uh, he says, interesting, you mentioned the impression left on Polish with obscenities borrowed from Russian. In uh, Ireland, during round table discussions conducted for our languages with Russian speakers uh, about 10 years ago, participants mentioned hearing Polish colleagues uh, here cursing in Russian. These Russians <laughs> would intervene and ask demand their colleagues refrain from using Russian and curse in your own language, an ironic iteration of would-be imposition domineering between those fears. Uh, and now he says, in respect to pluralism, do you have a particular enthusiasm for any political thinkers, perhaps attentive to linguistic indeterminacy or ethno-linguistic ideology identity? I like Arendt on pluralism, sorry, in political thought, Bachtin on resisting totalized notions of unitary language. So question uh, uh, respect to pluralism, do you have any particular uh, enthusiasm for any political thinkers. Mm. Okay, yes, Bakhtin is, um, I think, a good a good choice. I mean, uh, if we treat him as a political thinker, I would say we should also look at the thinkers looking at the English language in particular. So, for example, David Crystal, although I know that he's not, uh, you know, liked by, by a lot of, um, uh, yes, yeah, students of the English language, basically, uh, he always gets those questions about, you know, the non-native speakers coming and, you know, corrupting our language and so on. And basically he always responds <laughs> saying there are different ways of talking and there are different ways of using the language. So I would say maybe um, David uh, Crystal, another great thinker whose name I unfortunately forgot, which is terrible, is this Columbia uh, scholar who's also quite often in, um, invited to a political podcast. Maybe someone will remember and um, and write in the in the chat box. but. Uh, basically another, you know, the, the way in the US there's also some sort of stigmatization uh, related to the English language and the way, you know, there's variation on possibility of like ethno, uh, you know, like linguistic um, variety and um, when I remember, I mean, I can give you the name of this particular one, but I would, I would definitely recommend looking at the English language now in particular, where basically most of the debates are, um, most of the debates are, um, um, yes, I think uh, the kind of igniting points quite often, or the focal okay. points for other languages. Thank you. Uh, Przemyslav uh, is asking, I'm now wondering about the subject of authorial multiples uh, in several different languages, and then them further existing as translation multiples uh, in another language. For instance, uh, the works of Samuel Beckett in, in Polish. Could this potentially imply authorial recognition of such a potential multiplicity? Mm -hmm. As far as I understand, this question is about basically different versions kind of um, functioning on a par with each other, but they are different language versions. So, for example, the instance of self-translation or basically multilingual writing would be, I think, at the core of this question, as far as I understood. So the, I mean, one of the potential ways of going around it basically would be to publish bilingual, um, bilingual uh, editions, for example. And I, I actually myself postulate uh, quite often like uh, producing, you know, parallel variants just to see for particular, you know, like self-translated authors, self-translating authors or multilingual authors to, uh, to see that, you know, this variation is also at the level of language. So Beckett is a good example. Uh, there are many more Nancy Houston um, and basically all the um, all, all, all the uh, self-translators, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, for example. Uh, and basically, it is difficult to, I think, acknowledge this multiplicity at the level of publishing. Again, for the reasons I mentioned, because it's already very difficult to squeeze one version right in some of the books uh, uh, and convince the publisher to basically publish, you know, like something something more than just like one version in the target language and um there i think again in the genre of poetry it's easier also in online publishing it's easier so for example there should be i think um uh, and and there are um you know um like journals like the asymptote for example where basically two versions are usually published um, next to each other uh so that should also take place when for example there are yeah multiple languages um uh, involved in the production in the literary production of a particular author yeah, and there are, there are multiple Dantes, for example. I mean, there are multiple Dante. I mean, I, I, I don't want to go there, but just reminding of the current discussion about, you know, coming up with a politically correct uh, version of Dante erasing uh, the infamous uh, reference to Mohammed. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm moving to the next question by Jess Jensen. Thank you very much. Uh, 
do you see the dynamics of translation leading to unsighted translation of concept of concepts from minor languages into the hegemonic English discourse? I'm thinking of sliding doors as a cannibalized version of Pshipadek. I hope I, I, I pronounced this well. That's right. So Kishlovsky's blind chance of Pshipadek. Yes, so basically sliding doors and actually uh, Run, Lola, Run are mentioned uh, as, you know, like um, as films inspired by, by Kishlovsky. So, you know, like this dynamic is definitely there. And I would say that in the context of translation multiples in particular, um, I think they don't invite that much translating from minor languages because there's this idea that the original in some way is already known so we dealt with very canonical authors like for example right Dante I had uh, well Ernst Jandl, um, maybe not so much but basically you have the idea that you know at least the original language will be known and some of the you know readers will be able to kind of appreciate this multiplicity based on the, what they already know in the original Although in my batch I also had um, Sawako Nakayasu, who basically introduced this new Japanese modernist and said, well, she's not known, but I'm going to present 16 different variations on this particular uh, poem. So I would say that there is this dynamic definitely also in terms of numbers, we can basically see which languages get translated. And for example, Polish, uh, uh, with which Jess is working uh, at Harvard is definitely, um, you know, one of the cases where basically you have Polish sort of like making it usually like to the top 10, but not being, you know, it is like a semi-peripheral language. So I say that I would say that there, are no, there will be for, for a while no uh, translation multiples in English based on Polish authors because this has to be something, you know, um, which, which is already recognizable and this you know, dynamic between the minor and the major, I think works, um, works uh, that doesn't work good for translation multiples. Although, as I said, there are, there, there, there are um, exceptions, like for example, Sawako Nakayasu, uh, which comes to my mind. Um, I mean, depends also on the knowledge of the Chinese. There are, I have like two Chinese versions, I mean, sorry, two Chinese um, translation multiples, so based on um, the Chinese um, originals. Um, but uh, yes, the, uh, so, so I do agree that there is this dynamic involved in the case of, for example, Polish. Polish is 10, I think, uh, most, uh, I mean, well, Polish, first of all, is the second most widely spoken language in the UK and Ireland. It gets, um, the, uh, it, it is like the, in the top 10 most translated languages in the US and top 11 in the UK and Ireland. Uh, so I would say that, um, you know, you can have at least, um, I mean, some translation experiments with a set, a very fixed set of authors, like for example, Bruno Schulz, where basically Jonathan Safran Torres published his take on Bruno Schulz, and that was a recognizable source just because Bruno Schulz is so much and rooted in the American culture and uh, in particular American Jewry, um, that basically it is possible to experiment in this way. I don't think in the context of translation, more than one would work for any of the other Polish, Polish authors. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. I have a few more questions, but I will have to cut it short. Uh, we'll go. We are going over time a little bit. Uh, so I'm actually I find the question by Enrica Ferrara quite interesting. She says, uh, "How is the study of variants uh, in translation affected by the more and more extensive use of computational translation tools? Do we risk to attach importance to translation variants uh, produced by software?" Uh -huh. It's a great question. So this is also something that comes up also in the context of, for example, Google Translate, uh, which usually suggests one, I mean, it does suggest more than one, let's say, but there is like usually the preferable um, kind of um, option um, on, on, you know, like on the top of those um, and the most frequent one, let's say, statistically, statistically speaking. Uh, so I would say that translation multiples actually um, they oppose this uh, notion or this way of thinking that basically we can have a variety which is just produced based on the statistical frequency because you will see in that mix which I also showed you um, based on Caroline Bergvall's poem where uh, you know there were some typos for example or some very uh, unconventional um, translation choices which wouldn't I think otherwise be highlighted by the software based on the number of entries or based on the frequency of some translation solutions because this is I mean in terms of translation algorithm this is how Google Translate works right so basically you have the kind of statistically 
uh, speaking uh, most frequent option which comes up when this particular word is translated into a different language. And I think translation multiples kind of break with that uh, framework in a sense that they extend the number of possibilities because you still have the options which would be otherwise unconventional, as I said, or you know, could have been some glitches which are interesting, equally interesting. Um, with my students at Trinity, we also talked about, for example, the way of standardizing the language in terms of gender. So for example, you know, he is a doctor, she is a nurse. This is how some of the words are, you know, some sentences are usually translated, right? So there's also um, a problem with machine translation that based on the statistical significant statistical uh, frequency, uh, you can um, uh, just like narrow down some options to something which maybe comes up statistically speaking, you know, as the most frequent one or an array of most fre frequent ones, but it leaves out those other uh, unrecognized um, options, uh, maybe in the world where she is a doctor and he's a nurse or something like that. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. I think we have to close now. Uh, we are slightly over time, but I hope uh, our ghost in the machine, uh, Dr. Creever Whelan does not mind. Uh, Cordell, thanks uh, to you as well. And a particular thanks uh, to our uh, wonderful speaker today, uh, Dr. Kasia Szymanska. You did a really great job. It was such, you gave us so much uh, to think about, um, so much inspiration. Um, not only for the, the Polonists among us, but uh, I would say for, for all those listening, I hope you had a good time. Thanks a lot. And uh, well, let's uh, symbolically, my, my students know how to give hands uh, on Zoom. I, I, I don't know, they, they, they produce all sorts of noises, but we can uh, clap your hands, uh, our hands and, and say chinko uh, here and, and have a good uh, evening, all of you. Thank you. Thank you very much for hosting me today. Thanks. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.